0: good morning church it's good to see you here it's good to be together today i want to encourage you to take your bibles and turn to the book of nehemiah chapter 5. nehemiah is in the old testament and we are in chapter five we're making our way through if you're new to us we've been working from the start of this this year we've been working our way through this old testament book and we find ourselves today in chapter five as you make your way there just kind of Backdrop context for us to think about as we think through Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is the story of God raising up Nehemiah who was in exile, a Jew in exile, raises Nehemiah up to return to Jerusalem to help the people rebuild the city as they resettle it after spending decades in exile. It's not an easy road, even in Ezra. People had started to return and started to rebuild, but the rebuilding efforts had ceased. And so now Nehemiah is coming to to help reignite that building effort to see the city rebuilt, but it's not easy. As they return, they face opposition, as we looked at last week from surrounding nations. They were intimidated, threats were made, but they trust the Lord and they persevere in the work. But while these threats from the outside have been addressed, or at least been met with God's help, in chapter five we see a new threat emerge. But this time it is not external, it's an internal threat. Find here in chapter five is a great problem that the Jewish people faced. Really it wasn't ultimately a food shortage that was the problem, it was a generosity shortage that was the issue. When we come to this chapter, the central question that I think that's being asked even of us today is do we care more about ourselves and personal gain or do we, out of reverence for God, seek to be generous to others? Do we care more about what we can get for ourselves or do we, out of a reverence and fear of God, care more about how we can serve the needs of those around us. While we live in a much different era today of redemptive history, our relationship even to the Mosaic Covenant has changed, but the command to love our neighbor and to care for the weak and vulnerable remains. Scripture often speaks to this, of how the weak and how the needy, how the poor are a priority for God and thus should be a priority for the people of God. Psalm 41 verse one says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. James chapter two in the New Testament warns us against showing partiality and ignoring those who aren't like us, especially those who are poor. Think about the Gospel of Luke. We just spent several years in Luke and how many times in Luke, Luke referred to caring for the needs of the weak and the vulnerable, the needy, the poor. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller, says, if God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to have the tenderest love and closest involvement with the socially weak, then what should God's people be like? He says they must be a people likewise passionately concerned for the weak and the vulnerable. Friends, when you consider the scriptures, as God's people we are called We are called to love one another. We are called to prefer one another, to consider others more important than ourselves. We are called to outdo one another in showing honor, and on and on we could go. The responsibility, the relationships that we have to one another is a relationship of humility and compassion. Our attitude and our actions towards other Christians and even beyond the church to others in general, should be marked by a genuine care and compassion. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter six, verse nine. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He calls us there as Christians to do good as we have opportunity to everyone that we can. As we have opportunity to to care for someone, to do good to others, let's do it. And especially so to the household of faith. We have a peculiar, a unique relationship to fellow brothers and sisters within this congregation and even beyond. Let's make sure that we're doing good to each other. You come to Nehemiah chapter five, and that was not the prevailing attitude at hand, especially among the nobles and the leaders, among the Jews. From this passage, I want us to see three things that develop, and as such, Nehemiah's response teaches us the priority that we must place on our love and care for each other as the community of the redeemed Foremost, But I think that that same principle and that same mindset that we should have for each other should bleed over into other relationships as well. The three three things that develop throughout this passage that we'll kind of walk through together today is this. We see, first of all, a problem confronted. Second, a corrective that's issued. And then third, an example that's provided. Let's begin with the problem that's confronted. And we see that in the first five verses of chapter five. Verse is pretty clear. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This time, this outcry, this complaint, this concern was not due to another threat from external factors. Again, the, the problem that the people faced in Israel was a problem of dealing with this famine and food crisis. On top of everything else the people were dealing with, all of the threats, all of the concerns, the, the, the laborsome toil that, that was required even in building the wall, food was now sparse. Because of this shortage, some of the wealthier Jews were taking advantage of some of the, the poor. Those in the lower class of society were, were even mortgaging their farms and vineyards just to make ends meet. They, they were doing everything they can to buy food. Others were taking out loans and being charged extraordinary amounts of interest to do so. Still others were so desperate that they didn't have any access to any kinds of funds. They were selling their children into slavery simply to feed their families. And brothers and sisters, realize this, that this was not some kind of oppression that was happening from the Persian Empire. This was Jew to Jew. This was an internal problem that the Jewish people were were oppressing and and harming their fellow Jew. Thus the great outcry. And thus the great response from Nehemiah when he says in verse 6 that he was very angry when he heard their cry in these words. What we find here is... The root of the problem, the root of the problem is not a famine. The root of the problem is not some kind of failed economic policy, per se. The root of the problem in Jerusalem was greed and selfishness, a lack of generosity among the leaders and the nobles towards those who were without. Now, fast forward to our day and time, we, we might, we are, in the midst of a pandemic-induced inflation, with fewer options at the store, but by no means are we in the same situation here in our day and time in Southern Maryland as were the people of God in Jerusalem. But many of our brothers and sisters do face situations like this. Some face exploitation. Many are often simply overlooked in the world today. All, things, all kinds of things impact our, our brothers and sisters today throughout the world, throughout throughout all kinds of circumstances. But the the point of all of this is that despite the situations that some of our brothers and sisters may be in in the world, we are called to care and take action as we have opportunity to serve them. One of the things that we find in the scripture is that the Lord speaks regularly to the priority of caring for the needs of the poor and vulnerable, and he shows us how clearly he values this, this reality. We see the weak and vulnerable being preyed upon today in society in so many different ways from payday lending to sex trafficking. The rich and powerful do exploit those who are the poor and the weak. That's just the reality of life in a cursed, broken, sinful world. And the Bible makes crystal clear that the one place this kind of attitude and oppression should not exist is within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we are called to do good, to serve those in need in generous ways. Yet how often does generosity characterize our lives? That is the question I think each of us have to ask ourselves. You see, our generosity can often be superficial and comfortable, can't it? You know, this way of living that the Bible speaks about, of of being generous, goes against everything we're taught in the world. We're taught to be consumers, to spend most of our lives consuming, obtaining, storing up, and on and on we go. But I just want to ask you, just, just in thinking about your own mindset towards those who may struggle in this world, think about your own budget, your income. Do you ever give thought to how your earning and spending has impact on other people? Is there space in your budget to care for those who are in need? Do you seek them out? In her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much, Ashley Hales writes, as we stay out of the lives of the poor and needy, because we first don't see ourselves as poor and needy, our compassion dries up. Our success actually makes us less generous, not more. I think that's a good word of warning to us. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be generous to those who are in need, to the poor and to the needy, then we must not live in isolation from them. And yet that's one of the, often one of the greatest challenges we face in an affluent society, is that great divide that often exists between the rich and the poor often, often reflected in our churches. I've regularly said that one of the great challenges that we have as Christians living in an affluent society, living in a very affluent county, is the great socioeconomic divide that exists between brothers and sisters at times. It's difficult. If we're going to make space in our budgets to minister to those who are in need, then we need to be in proximity to those who are in need. It's hard, but it's a needed question for us to consider. We are an affluent church in an affluent community. That's just a fact. And what are we doing to care for those who have need? There's a great temptation for us to, to just overlook simply to ignore at times those who may have need, the weak and the vulnerable of our community, even within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many within our reach who don't have the same support systems or safety nets that many of us take for granted every day. And those kinds of people can become invisible to us. Even fellow brothers and sisters who may not have what we have can become invisible to us. So you see this problem that is confronted head on here in Nehemiah, the, the rich were, were, were taking advantage of those who had less. And this was within the Jewish community. This was not, a, this was not Persia imposing their, their will over the people. That was already in, in existence. This was on top of all of that. You had fellow Jew hurting fellow Jew. See from this text is a corrective that is issued, and you see that in verses 6 through 13. Once this great outcry reached the ears of Nehemiah, he was angry. He gets angry a couple of times in this book, but this time he's very angry there in verse six, and, and verse seven tells us he takes some time to gather himself, to, to gather his thoughts, and then he, then he quickly addresses the situation. He calls a meeting, he calls the nobles and the officials together, and he demands that their, their, way, their, their oppressive ways stop immediately. So that's what he does in, these, in, these, in this next section of scripture. In verses six through 13, he calls them together. and He says, this has to stop. What you're doing is wrong. Now, what I want you to see is that he doesn't just tell them to stop being greedy and give money back and give their kids back. He tells them to do that. But notice he makes several appeals to them as to why they should. I think this is important for us. Sometimes it's important for us to remember as God's people. When we're given commands, when we're given certain instructions in the scripture, that, that sometimes we just need to be told, do this and not do that. But it's helpful, isn't it? Sometimes to remember why. What should be the motivation behind the commands? And I think what, that's exactly what you see here. Nehemiah is saying, stop this evil way. And here are some reasons as to why you should stop. I think these are helpful for us to consider. And so he gives us several appeals. Number one, notice he appeals to their identity. Look at verse 7. It says, I took counsel with myself and brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Three times in two verses, Nehemiah uses that term brothers. This is family language. You see what Nehemiah is doing here? He's not just calling out their error. He is pointing out the fact that they are hurting one another and they are part of the same covenant community. These were fellow Jews. Not that exploiting non-Jews would have been okay, but this especially should not have been the case within this community. We know that when we read the scriptures, we go to the New Testament and we see certain things that that we're instructed in. Jesus says in John chapter 13 in verses 34 and 35, he calls us there to to love. He, He says that you're to love one another. And as we love one another, the world's going to see it and they're going to know you are followers of Jesus by the way that you love each other. Now, do you think that Ballot was looking on at this, this situation in Jerusalem saying, oh, they must love each other. They take each other's kids as slaves. No, not at all. Not at all. This was not the case. Friends, it's a reminder to us that our care and our compassion for the entire believing community is not something we base upon economic or ethnic or other kinds of status. We are called to care for the entire body of Christ, one, because it glorifies God and reflects his character. Two, it shows the world who we belong to. Three, it shows that we value those who are created in his image, which is everyone, and four, it re- reflects the fact that we are part of the same community, local body of Christians here, but a greater body of community as we think about the universal church. It's a reminder to us that fellow brothers and sisters, those who are suffering, we should suffer with them. We should enter into their their suffering and care for them as we have opportunity to do so. Listen, you can read a passage like this and, and hear these kinds of things and get overwhelmed really quickly when you look at the world today. We have to remember, we, we're not going to save the world. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is not going to, to save every, every crisis. It's not going to happen. But as you have opportunity, remember what, what uh, the scripture said, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone. As we are living in proximity to situation and, and we are aware of opportunities to do good, we should do that but he appeals to their identity and it should remind us that we have a responsibility, let me even say, obligation to care for the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I do want to commend you. This is not a sermon against you. Let me just say a word of commendation to you, church, because I see you do this and you do it well. The number of times, again, one of the privileges There's some things that aren't privileges of being a pastor, but there's some privileges, there's some perks, and one of the perks about being a pastor is you get to see people care for each other, kind of behind the scenes. You get to see things like people giving their stimulus checks, saying, I really don't need this, can you give it to somebody who does? People buying groceries for others. People caring for each other in ways that you'll never see otherwise. It's a beautiful thing to watch, and I've seen you do it countless times. I'm thankful for that and I would just say keep keep it up let's do let's do more let's 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 continue that spirit of generosity as we care for the needs of the others I, I don't see you enslaving each other's children praise God what a blessing but if your kids want to come mow my yard for free they're welcome right we, we don't do that we're, we're not enslaving each other's kids we're not mortgaging our properties to, to take advantage of others But we could do that in other ways, can't we? We can, we can overlook, we can ignore, we can we can forget sometimes we're called to be generous. He appeals to their identity. He's like, listen, th- these are your family, these are your community. Number two, he appeals to scripture, sort of. Get out of that caveat. Verse seven. Notice he says, he um, says you're exacting interest, each from his brother. This, this, in this, he mentions interest a couple of times in this passage. He doesn't refer to any other Old Testament scriptures, but Nehemiah would have most certainly had certain Old Testament scriptures in mind when he forbade the Jews from charging other Jews' interest. It's in Exodus 22, verse 12 through 27, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 54, Deuteronomy chapter 23, 19 through 20. Several times in the Mosaic law you find this this instruction, this command to not charge one another interest. And here we are in Jerusalem, post-exile, and guess what the people are doing? They are charging each other interest. He's calling them out because they're in violation of this command. I think that's something we didn't understand. There's a biblical principle that's driving Nehemiah to say this. He just didn't make it up said, this is a bad idea. No, he's he's referring back to some Old Testament commands that would have been a foundation for him from which to to speak. Now, you think about our practice today. We are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, nor are we Jews living in a covenant community in Jerusalem constrained by the Torah's regulation, the, the law, the law's regulation of money or other things, but The Bible has a lot to say about our view and practice of money. The question we need to be pondering is, are we drawing our view and use of money through the lens of scripture, or are we drawing it from the so-called American dream? Radically different perspectives. Very different views on how we should steward the resources in which we've been given. Bible calls us to a posture of generosity and giving and compassion and care. It's a good word to us just to to pause and consider just how, how much are we paying attention to the guidance of scripture and our use of money. Number three, a third appeal, an appeal to God's redemptive purpose. Look at verse eight. And I said to them, we, all the Jews, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So what Nehemiah is saying, he's like, listen, we, we've, we've been in exile. We, we were foolish, we disobeyed God, and he's told us if we would continue disobeying him, he was going to, to, to let other nations come in and take us away. And that's exactly what happened. But now they're returning from that ag- exile, as God had promised, and Nehemiah's like, listen, do you not understand? One, God's people had been redeemed out of Egypt long ago. Remember, they, they brought out, the, God brought out through Moses and then uh, later Joshua into the promised land, God's people out of Egypt through the, through the Exodus and given the promised land. Most recently now, they've been in exile, but God returns them back to the promised land for them to simply exploit each other in this way. To take advantage of each other, to treat each other in unjust ways. Remembering God's redemptive activity is always a good default for us when we consider our present faithfulness to Him. God's work in the past should encourage and inform our faithfulness in the present. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, Do you not remember what God has done? Do you not remember that God's brought us here? For you now to just treat each other in this way? See, he's referring to God's generosity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is centered on grace and generosity. I want you to, if you can, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Second Corinthians is in the New Testament, chapter 8. Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers regarding an offering he's collecting for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So there's Christians in Jerusalem that are poor, that are suffering, they're in need. Paul's writing a letter to Corinth, a good ways off asking for them to raise money. But what he does here is he points to the example of the Macedonian churches to show how generous they were to encourage the Corinthian believers in their giving so that the Christians in Jerusalem could be cared for. Listen to what Paul says. He says, we want, verse one, chapter eight of 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So it's Thessalonica, Philippi, those kinds of churches. For in a severe test of affi- affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints. When was the last time you begged God to be able to give for somebody's well-being? That's a good question for me to ask my own heart. And this, verse five, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started as he had started so he should complete among this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He's encouraging them, he's exhorting them to be generous in their giving. And then notice what he does in verse nine. He gives them the reason as to why they ought to do this. For, which is because, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich. It's just a a creative way of explaining the gospel. Jesus left the glories of heaven as the son of God to come and humble himself as a man, living life as a man on this planet so that you and I who were poor, not just monetarily speaking, but spiritually speaking, might receive the abundance of his riches and inherit eternal life. Verse 10, he says, in this matter I gave my judgment. Or give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I did not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack." What Paul does there, he's he's explaining this long conversation about Corinthian church, you need to give for the saints in Jerusalem. Look at the example of the Macedonian churches. But right embedded in the midst of all of that, he says, ultimately you should look to Jesus, who. Who, who exemplified this in, 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 in a gospel way. Your redemption is dependent upon someone who had it all giving everything away so that you could have it all. It's a glorious reminder that we see. Not only that, we see that it, it, in the example there in Corinthians that, that we should be mindful of Christians even beyond our local context. We have a responsibility, an an obligation, a covenant to, to one another. But even Christians who are outside of our context, we should have an eye to them as well. And that ought to be the very thing that we are driven to pursue, an appeal to God's redemptive purpose. So he's reminding us that in the gospel you have this picture of generosity, of grace on display as our sins were forgiven through the act of Jesus. And as recipients of that lavish generosity, that gracious work that should inform and shape our own practice of love and generosity to others. Number four, an appeal to the fear of the Lord. Look at verse nine. He says, so then I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations? He exhorts these leaders here to stop their evil way. He says it's not good. And then he says, ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? What you're doing is is not something that is an example of fearing God. You're more concerned about your own well-being and maintaining that standard of of well-being and living than you are fearing the Lord. As such, they needed to be concerned about God's reputation among the nations. The way they were treating each other did not paint a good picture to the surrounding nations about the character of God. Their witness was impaired by the injustices that occurred within the community of the the covenant community. I think the same lesson is true for us. If we truly fear God, then one of our chief aims will be to live in a way that honors the Lord before those who who are watching, those who don't believe in Him. We would live in a way, and how we treat one another would show the goodness of God. How we treat each other says a lot. Listen brothers and sisters, how we treat each other says a lot about how we view God. And it has a lot to say. How we treat each other is a witness in and of itself to the world who doesn't believe God. So it's an appeal to fear. We're called to fear the Lord. And as we fear the Lord, we love each other. And as we do that, we are a witness to his greatness. Number five. Fifth appeal is appeal from personal practice. And I just want to refer to this briefly because we're going to return to it in a moment. In verses 10 and 11, you see Nehemiah. He wanted them to know that he himself had lent money and grain, but not in a way that sought to benefit him personally. He said, moreover, I and my brothers and servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you've taken from them. So listen, my own personal practice is not to do what you're doing. And Nehemiah was the governor of Judah. He had everything at his disposal. If if there was somebody in Judah, someone in Jerusalem that had access to take advantage of others, it was Nehemiah. And he said, listen, I'm not doing that. I'm not playing your game. He helped those in need. And then number six, the sixth appeal is appeal to God's judgment. Look at verses 12 and 13. Nehemiah says, listen, I'm calling you to obedience. And He says, I called the priest, excuse me, look verse 12. Then he said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. This is what the people said to Nehemiah. And then he says, I, and I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. You see what Nehemiah is doing? He's like, listen, All right, you said you're going to do what I've asked you to do. He's like, I'm going to hold you to your word. And if you're not going to fulfill your word, then may the Lord judge you. May the Lord empty you out. May May he take care of you. He reminds them they're going to be accountable for their actions. And if they did not keep their word, then God would bring judgment upon them. Brothers and sisters, judgment is certainly... Not the only factor, but it's certainly a motivating factor to obedience, isn't it? It's not something we should take lightly. It's a reminder to us that it's God who determines what is right and wrong, and we ought to live it accordingly to that standard, because we're gonna be held accountable to it. So you see this appeal. Nehemiah issues this corrective, and he uh, he appeals to all of these things as to reasons why they ought to cease their evil activity and start to do good to those in need. Number three, lastly, an example provided. In verses 14 through 19, Nehemiah basically gives us a bit of a personal testimony here. Remember, he was cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he had sought the king of Persia's permission to return to Jerusalem to lead this effort. So the king of Persia appoints Nehemiah governor of Judah, a role that he would fulfill for 12 years and that also came with certain benefits. So I'm sure before Nehemiah traveled from Persia in the north down to Jerusalem, that he met with HR in Persia and they kinda unpacked for him the benefit package he was gonna have because he was now governor. And one of those perks was this generous per diem that he was given every day that would allow him these wonderful this great food budget this food and wine budget that he was given so that he could host regular dinner parties at his house in the palace in fact it was persian custom that governors were expected to host dignitaries regularly so we see here every day one ox six sheep birds and 10 kinds of wine were prepared for him to host these kind of parties But what you need to see is that Nehemiah makes crystal clear that he did not take the food allowance he was afforded. He had every right to take as the governor, because it was too much for the people. Notice what he says. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Former governors, though, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. This is, this is amazing. Nehemiah had the legal right to take these allowances he was afforded by the way, which would have been given to him from the taxes of the people. He had the right to do that, but he laid aside that royal privilege. Why? Because he feared the Lord. What we see here is a man who led with a selfless heart that feared God more than he did man. Now, we're not told where he came up with the money to, to, to pay for all of these kinds of meals. Seems that, even though we're not told, but I mean, it seems like he's paying for it out of his own pocket. He's not taking advantage of that allowance that he would have been given. Can you imagine having that kind of food allowance? I mean, just the, the access you would have had to such a lavish banquet. And he pays for it out of his own pocket. Nehemiah is a wealthy man. I mean, he's governor of Judah. He was the cupbearer of the king, and now he's governor of Judah. And he acknowledges here that some of the things he enjoys would have been at the expense of those who weren't well off like him. So he takes measures to not to add to their personal burdens. Now, you think about that for a minute. Nehemiah was a man of wealth and privilege in that society and many of us in this room would be among the wealthy and privileged of society today, that's just a fact. And by the way, that's not something you should feel guilty over but something you should know you will be accountable for." Nehemiah doesn't express any sense of guilt from his position that he had access to these these resources. He doesn't say that's just a terrible thing. He doesn't feel guilty. He doesn't confess this is some kind of sin. No, he he simply stewards his position in order to make sure those were in need that were were being taken care of. It's a reminder to us, friends, that that God does not call us all to equal standards of living, but he does call us to treat people with equal levels of compassion and care. We're called to be generous stewards in doing good to those in need. Nehemiah was wealthy and Nehemiah was generous. It's a lesson I think that we should take away. He considered the interest of others, not just his own. While Nehemiah's example is instructive for us, isn't that the very thing that Jesus did as we referred to earlier? But I want to remind you from Philippians chapter two, this, this principle that exists that I think that should inform how we go about living our lives as believers today. Philippians chapter two, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, one of those Macedonian, one of those generous churches. He says, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love. This is Philippians 2 verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Friends, that is hard to do. I struggle considering other people more important than myself. I don't know about you, that's hard. It's natural for me to make sure that Adam is taken care of in this life and I will do everything that I possibly can without thought to do that. And sometimes to do it excessively. So I don't have to think about taking care of my needs. What I have to fight to do by the grace of God is to consider others more important than myself. That is a challenge and friends, that is only a grace that God can give. It's what Paul Paul is instructing. He says, let us not look to only to his own interest, but let's also look to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nehemiah's example of generosity is one thing, but we have the ultimate example of generosity expressed in a different way. Here in Philippians chapter two, we're called to consider others more significant than ourselves because that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to die for our sins. Brothers and sisters, the only way we will ever be able to put off selfish ambition and give ourselves for the good of others is to see and to embrace how Jesus has done that for us as he emptied himself, became a man, lived a life of righteousness and died on the cross to be the penalty for your sin so that you can be right with God. He was raised from the dead three days later, declaring his victory and triumph over the grave. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's promised to come again. Jesus has done all of this because he considered you more important than himself. He gave himself for your sake. He emptied himself to redeem you. Friends, let that, be, let that be the ultimate example that we find that in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ coming to live and die and be raised again for sinners, that we have what we need to understand how we're to live out our lives for the good of one another. So friends, as we think about this passage, here in Nehemiah chapter five, the big question is, I think the big question we need to answer is this, do, do we, do you, do you live to make yourself more and more comfortable? Or do you live in a way that gives yourselves sacrificially at times to serve the needs of one another? Again, we may not be enslaving each other's children or mortgaging each other's homes and vineyards, but it could be It could be that God's work at times is hindered because we prefer our own comfort more than we do the good and needs of others. Friends, God has not called us to embrace a comfortable Christianity. He has called us to love our neighbor, to bless those in need, to consider the needs of others, and to live generously for their good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage and example of what took place in Jerusalem so long ago. Lord, these were dark days. These were difficult days there in Jerusalem and your people were in in bad shape spiritually. Father, we thank you for this word and, and for this testimony from the Old Testament that that shows us this, that's, that's transparent about the reality of what your people were like and what they did. Father, would you help us to learn from it, not to fall into the errors of old ways, but God, that we would be faithful and generous stewards of what you've given us. Lord, would you shape our hearts after the heart of our Savior? Would you help us to be a people who are willing to humble ourselves, to, to consider others more significant, more important than ourselves. Father, we live in a world that breeds selfishness. So we need your help in seeing beyond our own way at times, that we might be instruments in your hands to do good in this world and to love each other well, that your name would be glorified. Forgive us when we have failed to do so. And help us, Lord, by your grace to walk forward in faithfulness and in righteousness that you would be praised and pleased. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.